0: you're listening to the bridal business bootcamp podcast. I'm your host, Jameson Evans. We offer authentic interviews from leaders in our industry to help you scale your business from advertising and marketing to business branding, and even self-care. We talk about it all on this podcast. Our goal is to help you grow and find success within the wedding industry. So wherever you're listening today, thank you for being here. And I hope you truly enjoy today's conversation. Today on the Bridal Business Bootcamp podcast, I have the honor to chat with my friend Lauren Hammersley. Lauren and I actually grew up together in Moorpark, California. We went to high school together and church together. And I will preface this interview so you know this is a completely different interview than I typically give for our podcast. It's a completely different conversation, but a story that I really, really wanted to share with our listeners. Years ago, Lauren's daughter, Hazel, was diagnosed with a very rare cancer, and she battled throughout her childhood until the age of seven when she passed away. It's a heartbreaking story, but also one of such deep strength. And months ago, I had interviewed Lauren to talk about their story, and I really wanted to reflect on how important it is to help support families who have children with childhood cancer, pediatric cancer. It's something that really speaks to my heart, specifically because I've watched Lauren go through what she has with her daughter, Hazel. And I know I've had Heather on with the Bumblebee Foundation on this podcast. It's something that really speaks to me, and I'm always wanting to reach out and help those who are dealing with pediatric cancer. However, when I interviewed her, we had some issues with the sound in the background. So we basically got cut off from our interview at the very end. And so I wanted to go back and re-interview her and, and fix the end, but we hadn't had a chance to do that. And most recently, Lauren was featured on a documentary called In the Dark of the Valley, and that's on MSNBC. And it focuses on a Santa Susana field lab that we always called Rockadine. I grew up in Park, live in Simi Valley now, and we always called this Santa Susana field lab Rockadine. And we would hear growing up these rockets that would go on and people would be like, what's that noise if they they weren't from the local area? And we'd say, oh, they're testing these rockets. Well, you watch this documentary and come to find out there's been many nuclear basically mistakes or disasters happening at this lab with very little accountability for cleanup or taking care of the residents that are in the area. So you fast forward to now and Lauren is meeting fellow families who are going through very similar types of rare cancers with their children. And they come to find out they're all living, if not on the same street, in the same city or in the same area. And they start to put these dots together of hey, this is a little strange. Why are these rare cancers starting to pop up? And so it really focuses on this particular mother in the documentary, this particular mother who has made it a mission, and Lauren is right there as well, but they've made it a mission to demand cleanup, but also to make awareness of what has happened at this particular field lab. Now, if you are not based in Southern California, this should still speak to you because we really should be trusting our government. We should be trusting those who we're trusting our children's lives with. Moving out to this suburban area that we feel comfortable living in and come to find out we're actually being poisoned. And you don't know, no matter where you are in our country, you don't know if that's happening to you unless your government tells you it does. And so I hope that this brings awareness to just our area to our situation, to specifically the Santa Susana Field Lab, and that it helps just spark a fire underneath you as far as electing those who will be honest and true to, to us and who are not lifelong politicians, but those who really have a genuine care for people. So when I did this interview with Lauren, I in no way thought on the politics side of it. I was thinking more on how can we help those with ch- pediatric and child cancer. But after watching this documentary and seeing what Lauren's been fighting and hearing her speak, and it just it makes me mad. It makes me mad. I, I personally have psoriatic arthritis. And while that's not a cancer in any way, it's a very strange disease that's a lot more common nowadays. And there's a friend that I had that I grew up on the same street who has Crohn's disease. It's a very similar type of autoimmune disease. And it makes me wonder. I wonder if the reason that I'm going through the pain that I go through on a daily basis is because of the poisons that we were introduced to. And I don't know if there's any way to go back and know if that's true, but it definitely shouldn't have happened in the first place. And it's really disgusting finding out that certain... Situations that they knew about how the waste was not being cleaned up correctly and they did nothing about it. So I hope that you have on your heart after listening to this conversation to first and foremost watch the documentary In the Dark of the Valley on MSNBC but also in this holiday season that's coming up helping out donating maybe a toy or a gift card to the Bumblebee Foundation which I had Heather on our podcast last year talking about the Bumblebee Foundation and how they are an incredible organization that help those who are dealing with pediatric cancer and their families during this holiday season so there's a lot that we can do to help other in this this holiday season and I just hope this kind of sparks something inside of you to help give and, and to do something. Something, anything doesn't have to be money. It could be just your time. It could be your effort. It could be just sharing this podcast to help awareness uh, be gained. So enjoy this conversation. Lauren, my sweet friend, thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to be able to finally do it. It's been a long time coming.
0: Yes, it has. And so we grew up together in Park and I went to church together. And so um, it's just, it's an honor to kind of hear your story. And I feel like we've stayed friends through Facebook, which always offers that opportunity, but your story is an incredible one. And I'm so honored to have you here and to be able to kind of share what you and Hazel went through and your family. And so I just really appreciate your time. Oh, well,
1: I'm always so happy to, to talk about, especially what our family went through, but especially about Hazel because it it's a way to stay close to her. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. And for those of you listening, I'm sure you'll understand in just a few minutes what I mean by feeling close to my daughter, Hazel. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. So a few podcasts ago, I had the opportunity to have Heather with the Bumblebee Foundation on. And it's kind of funny because she was talking about her son, Jaren, and she had almost the same comment of, you know, I I really enjoy speaking about my son and, and I love that opportunity. So it's interesting that you have a very similar thought pattern and heart for that experience. But I did just... I'm a closet Kardashian watcher, okay, okay. <laughs> and I saw you on the Kardashians, and I was very excited. <laughs> I am like, I know her!
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, that opportunity was a really unique one. I don't watch them, but obviously, like every other American, I'm very aware of the family, and especially living out here, you know, I know kind of a lot about how they're involved in their community, and, and so I was a part of this event where we were speaking out against the Santa Susana Field Lab where a nuclear meltdown happened about 50 to 60 years ago. And they wanted to be a part of it. And they came and it was really neat. I Like, I, we didn't really reach out to go, hey, we want to be on the Kardashians. But it, it was kind of them coming to us. And it was really beautiful. So I, I'm yeah. really thankful for their voice in, in that time.
0: I love when they take that opportunity to kind of use their platform for good. So
1: <laughs> I hope they we'll keep doing it. That's what my hope is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Me too. So let's get started. So share everyone who you are and, and your story.
1: Okay. Like you said, my name is Lauren. I live out here in Southern California. I was born and raised out here, so it's kind of all I've known. I, I don't think I realize how privileged we are with the weather that we have until I yeah. travel somewhere else and realize, oh wow, we don't have a lot of bugs or humidity or snow. It's just pleasant all the time.
0: <laughs> yep, true. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've I a mom to five kids. I've been married to my husband. It'll be fifteen years next week, or the week after next week. So at the end of the month, it'll be fifteen. Wow. You stop counting days after that many years.
0: <laughs> yep, yep.
1: And yeah, I I started having kids when I was really young. I was twenty when I got, when I had my first child, and I wasn't really anticipating starting my family so young. But I met my husband, and it was one of those moments where you know when you know, and we got married. The summer after I graduated from high school. So I was just about to turn 19 when I married him. And, you know, lots of people have thoughts about that, but it was definitely the right decision for for my life and for my family's life and, and for us. And then eight months after the wedding, we got pregnant and we weren't completely avoiding it, but we weren't actively trying either. We were just saying, okay, if it happens, then this is the time. And we always knew we wanted a big family, although number four and five were a little more surprising than the others. (laughs) Um, Definitely number five. We were actively not trying with number five, but uh, (laughs) my God had different plans. So anyway, but yeah. And then I had just had my my fourth baby. His name is Jonah. He was five months old at the time, and this was in April 2013, April 2013 when my third child uh, my daughter hazel was diagnosed with stage 3 neuroblastoma which is a tumor cancer that is primarily found in children and it's one of the leading causes of deaths in children with cancer and it was it turned my whole world upside down you know i was still really young i i was overwhelmed with raising and nursing four kids cuz I, I we had them all very close together so i had both Jonah, who was five months, and Hazel, who was just barely two, uh, still in diapers. And I was still nursing. And so I was still in the throes of the chaos of young motherhood, which, you know, is, is a completely different subject than cancer, but equally stressful and life upending, but also equally beautiful. And uh, yeah, it just, it shattered kind of everything. And we went directly into treatment and she was in in treatment at Children's Hospital Los Angeles for about 18 months where she did everything you could think of that you get when you have cancer. She had it. So she did chemotherapy. So we did like six rounds of chemotherapy. Each round was about a week long. So we'd be at the hospital every day getting different chemos. And usually she would get two or three at a time. So it wasn't just like one dose, you know. And then she had an eight hour tumor resection surgery where they removed the tumor that was inside of her belly, which it started out the size of about a Nerf football. So small melon, maybe a little bit smaller, which was, you know, really surprising because we didn't see any changes physically on the outside of her body because she kind of always had this chubby little belly. And this tumor grew and just filled almost her entire abdominal cavity. And we didn't know until some of the symptoms she had started to present themselves. And then after surgery, she had a, a stem cell transplant, which is much like a bone marrow transplant, but you receive your own stem cells back instead of a donor's. And that process was, was very, very grueling. They give you the highest dose chemotherapy you can get to completely destroy your immune system and your bone marrow. And then they rescue your body with new stem cells so they can create new bone marrow and new like white blood cells, red blood cells, all the things you need to survive and fight disease. And what ended up happening was she had the chemotherapy and the side effects were so great that she was in the ICU for about four weeks, pretty much in a medically induced coma because her body was shutting down. And there came a point where we had to go, okay, like we have to start talking about the possibility of the treatment is going to kill her and not the cancer. And that was a really hard place to be, but not uncommon in the childhood cancer world, which you know makes my heart break and why I fight so hard for better treatment. But thankfully she recovered, made a full recovery, and was able to continue in treatment while still recovering, which is insane to me, but we had to because cancer doesn't stop. And so she started radiation therapy, and she did 20 days of that, and then about five to six months of immunotherapy. And then in June of 2014, she completed treatment, and she was cancer-free, and it was unlike anything I could even begin to describe in words the feeling we felt, knowing that she had conquered it, our family had conquered it, God conquered it, And she got to enjoy two and a half years of beautiful cancer-free life. And she was three, you know, so she went from three to five and she was just about to start kindergarten. She got, she was learning how to do all sorts of new things and was really excited about life and her hair was back. And two days before she started kindergarten, we had a, a check And as every family who's had cancer will tell you, like you get a lot of anxiety when it's scan time. And we went and I was nervous, but I was also feeling okay because it had been two and a half years. And I was thinking, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we're in the clear, but she relapsed and uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm on a call right now. What do you need? I I know you can show it to me when I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) so cute. I want to show you something. I know. Because it's the most important. Exactly. (laughs) It's probably going to be like a really cool booger she found, you know. Exactly. (laughs) Love it. Anyway, see that, that's, I mean, right there, that's such an example of life for.
0: Yep. (laughs)
1: Totally. Talking about some really hard stuff or going through some really hard stuff. And then something joyful and wonderful can happen in the midst of it, you know. And it's a very big lesson I've learned, you know, is to find those moments of joy.
0: Sure, I mean, most of us don't have that opportunity, yes. you know.
1: You know, it's so. hard. But what they say, like choose joy. It's a, it's a real, very real thing. It's not easy, but it's a very real thing that you can try to try to make the choice to see it, you know. Right. And I think right. Angel, my daughter was especially good at it.
0: Absolutely and she brought joy which she was really yeah. I mean to people that didn't even know her so
1: yeah. yeah so like i was saying in 2016 so right before she started kindergarten she relapsed and currently there is no known cure for relapsed neuroblastoma so when it, when a child relapses it's very scary and you try everything and anything and thankfully all the treatments we tried which were all very harsh and brutal like a lot of chemo and a lot of clinical trial drugs But she was able to beat cancer for a second time, which at that time she was six uh, when she finished. And we just really felt like this new lease on life, you know. And she, like I said a few moments ago, she was especially good at, despite her circumstances, finding hope, finding joy, finding time to still be a kid. And she just taught us all so much about what it meant to live. And we had this really unique opportunity during her cancer treatment. She did something that ended up going viral. She put a sign in her window that said, send pizza, room 4112. And somebody saw it and took a picture and posted it online and it went crazy. We got pizzas from everywhere. There was like 250 different pizzas. That were, <laughs> and we yep. were Covered all over the news, at, like from other countries, that, you know, they were calling for interviews. And and it was this really beautiful thing because all these people then congregated to our social media pages that were meant to keep family and friends updated. And we ended up getting over like, 120,000 people from all over the world just kind of looking to our family. And I I say we became, I've always kind of coined this term, we became accidental advocates. And I think it was the perfect thing for our family because we all needed something to like lift us up during that time. And like hearing people praying for my daughter from all over the world and knowing that people were rooting for her, knowing that she was inspiring them in their journeys was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And it truly was one of the major things that got our family through that time. And I think that we had this unique opportunity to be a voice for kids who can't speak for themselves because Hazel was really good at sharing her story. She loved connecting to people and I, I've i always loved writing. And so it kind of became this thing where people turned to us to hear the voice of the childhood cancer community for a lot of different things. And and it was just really special and beautiful and which is so strange to say that you know out of such an awful experience something so beautiful could happen you know mm-hmm. right and that kind of sustained us and then when she relapsed and and subsequently beat the cancer for the second time we're like okay we're going to we're going to not take a single moment for granted and we're not going to you know waste any time we're going to speak up for people and we spent a lot of that summer Doing those very things, you know, speaking at events. We went to Hawaii as a family. We spent so much time with friends, and, and I traveled to Washington, D.C. to help fight for legislation for childhood cancer funding, you know, all these different things. And then in October of was this 2017, uh, after three months of being cancer free again, she relapsed again, and we just could never really get on top of it. And in March of 2018, she lost her battle to cancer at least here on this earth. I, I think she she won in a very different way, but she succumbed to the disease that was just overtaking her body and since then it's been a totally different journey than what we went through the previous five years. A lot of pain, a lot of confusion. but I still am learning from her every single day on what it means to live and how to choose joy even on the days where I can't, I can't even get out of bed you know and I've been trying to continue to be a voice for people and for for children and I, I had a podcast for a while which I loved doing I missed doing it but we had to take a hiatus from that and then you know I speak a lot online and I I travel to places and try to speak on their behalf and and I feel close to Hazel in that way you know, but I also feel like I'm honoring her life as best I can because she, that's how she chose to live. She chose to live in an abundant, beautiful, loud, hopeful, joy filled way that I feel like is something I want to aspire to, you know, and I'm so thankful I was chosen to be her mom.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's funny, sometimes I'll see your posts where uh, you're just being open and share that it's been a hard day. And it's such an interesting thing because I feel like. Saying you're gonna choose joy and actually figuring out how to choose joy is such a different thing. And it's definitely a moment by moment choice. And the type of grief that you have experienced is rare, but you're such a fighter and you taught Hazel to fight. And she I mean, she did she's a fighter and in a way that just showed people that there's there's hope. And so when you started Hope for Hazel, what when did that was that after the pizza? Or was that prior?
1: It was prior to the pizza event. When she was diagnosed, hope was the thing that was keeping us all hanging on, right? That's what we all look to, to try to get through hard times. And I think especially right now in our country, there's so much upheaval and there's been so much change with the coronavirus and now with these protests and and all the stuff with the presidency, like there's so much upheaval that it's so hard sometimes to find hope. But I remember looking. I can look back and go, "That was, that was the anchor, right? That held us in place." So that when the storms got rough, we didn't fall. I mean, we could slip under the water, sure. And we there are days where I can't choose joy because it's so overwhelming. The pain and and the suffering that that Hazel experienced, the pain and suffering our family experienced, is at times extremely overwhelming. But at that time, hope was that thing. And there's a Bible verse that says hope is the anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6, 9. And we kind of, we put that on a t-shirt and we got bracelets and we said, we need to remind ourselves that we have hope for our daughter. So we said hope for Hazel. And then that turned into a Facebook page because we have so many friends and family that were looking to us for updates. And I was getting so many phone calls and text messages that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. And I said, this is the perfect way. And I had seen other families that we had met that had pages and, and, it just seemed really easy to keep the community connected and, and, and being able to tell them what our family may need at the time. Because a lot of people around us felt very helpless and powerless, just as we did, and didn't know how to help. And I didn't know what help we really needed. And so it was really easy to just say, hey, this is what we're going through, and we could use such and such help and just type it and put it out. And it was wonderful. And I created that Facebook page maybe a month before the pizza thing happened. So I really feel like everything happened just in the way it was supposed to, you know, and, and then the the viral thing happened and all these people joined from all over the world. And still that page has been a voice and people have asked me to keep posting and, and it's been a challenge learning the balance these last two years, but I'm trying to keep sharing her story and her legacy because I think so many people could learn so much from her just as I am still learning from her. And. And again, I feel privileged to be the person who gets to do that,
0: yeah, you know, I mean that has to be hard too to go through everything that you have gone through and to have to kind of tread those new waters, but then still speak out. My question is so when you're going through the experience with hazel and even before or after, what did you need others to do? Is it more of a financial situation? Because I was reading on kind of your mission statement on your website, and I wanted to just, I wanted to read how you said it. So once thrust into this world, we learned the grim statistics of not only the survival rates, but also those of awareness, support, and funding. And so I was really interested when I read that of, now you've made that your goal to kind of put out, what do you need people to do?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of twofold because firstly, when a family is going through a childhood cancer diagnosis, obviously they need help individually as a family. And sometimes that's financial because it's not just the medical care. You're you're driving to and from the hospital. You have to pay for parking every single time you go. And so Hazel and I, Often we spent the night at hospitals long, far many more days at the hospital than we were at home. And every day was $10, you know, and that gets a lot. And then you also have food, like the the child gets food, but the parent does not. So the parent has to buy food every day for three meals a day or snacks. And there's also like so many things that can really burden a family financially. So yes, that's a huge part of it. I think also just coming alongside and helping them in the home, because the home front is another battlefield. That's just as important as the stuff that's going on at the hospital and it's hard to keep up with dinner and laundry and scooping dog poop and all the mundane things of life that already get us down you know there's just no space in your mind for that so there's a lot of foundations in your in your local communities that help in those areas with family they help with mortgage payments they help with dinners they help with laundry they you know so if you are listening Look in your community and see what local community foundations help families who are fighting childhood cancer because there are incredible organizations out there. Like you had the Bumblebee Foundation on. We relied on them a lot during during treatment. In fact, our car broke down and the Bumblebee Foundation was one of three foundations who helped us get a new car during that time because we needed a reliable car to get us to and from treatments. But the second part is on a bigger scale, childhood cancer is not very known throughout the world. It's considered a rare disease, but it's a lot less rare than you think. It's seven children every single day die from childhood cancer. And by the end of the week, that's an entire classroom. And that shouldn't be the statistics. But unfortunately, because the survival rates are not very promising, there's not a lot of research dollars being funneled because it's not a, a promising field of study, which is an unfortunate reality. But the only way that that will get better is if doctors and researchers and people put their money where their mouth is and actually go and try to make these survival statistics better. There's just a big discrepancy right now in childhood cancer fundraising money. So, in the national budget, they only get 3.8% of the entire cancer budget. And there are dozens of different types of childhood cancers and hundreds of subtypes. And so 3.8% doesn't go very far when you have to split it between leukemia and medulloblastoma and neuroblastoma and DIPG, which are all very different types of cancer because some are brain cancers, some are nervous system tumor cancers, some are brain tumor cancers, and they all react and behave differently. And so if you look at the national budget, like breast cancer is a very specific type of cancer, but gets a huge percentage of the funding, huge percentage. And I'm so glad because I know so many friends who have suffered and I'm, I'm so thankful that they have gotten the research dollars that they have, but our children are not receiving the same courtesy or the same awareness. Even so many people don't even understand that it exists. Most people have an idea that some kids get cancer because you see St. Jude's commercials, right? But most everybody thinks it's leukemia. They don't realize how many cancers there are and how deadly and awful and ravaging that they could be. And then on top of that, the treatments that our kids are getting, it was chemos that were developed in the 1970s for adults. And it's very obvious kids' bodies are still growing and they react differently than grown-up bodies. And so it doesn't seem fair or smart or even the right thing to do to be giving children these harsh, harsh drugs that were developed for grownups, you know, 40 years ago or, or even longer now, you know? And so what we've been fighting for is better research, less toxic treatments, and more awareness. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. I, being out here in Southern California, I've partnered with the St. Baldrick's Foundation. They're based in Monrovia and they are the leading private funder of childhood cancer research in the world. And they have foundational offices all over the place, but it's a volunteer-driven organization and it's a play on the word St. Patrick's and it's St. Baldrick's. You go bald for kids with cancer. And so you say, okay, if I raise five thousand dollars, I'm gonna shave my head and you do it at an event where you can do it at home, you do it virtually, which is what they've been doing since the quarantine. And they've been able to raise so much money and our family, with all the, the events that we've done and, and Facebook fundraisers and stuff, we've raised uh, over $300,000 so far for research. And we've been able to give our money to specific grants that are fighting certain cancers or, or looking at certain research. And it just, it gives you a sense of, hey, I, I'm, I'm actually making a difference, you know? And I think for me, the goal is to keep talking about it, even though it's an uncomfortable subject, because it is, you personalize it, right? If somebody talks about a child having cancer, you immediately think of your own child and it's a really painful reality. But unfortunately, it's a reality for so many families. And I think that the more we talk about it, the more awareness we can bring to the issue, the more our kids could start surviving. And as painful as it can be, especially after losing Hazel, I don't think I ever want to stop being a voice because these children can't be a voice for themselves. They can't travel to Washington DC and, and speak to legislators. You know, they can't raise money. I mean, they do in their own ways, which is incredible. A lot of kids have fundraisers and stuff. And Hazel has shared her story with people of that were in a position to help make a change. You know, she's spoken up a lot, which is, you know, she was seven years old when she passed. So that says a lot about who she is. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, so look online the simple Google sh- search about childhood cancer awareness. And there there's a lot of information out there. And you don't have to feel powerless because it's a big problem. Yes. And like, if you just make one donation, you don't, you feel like you're not making a big difference, but you really can make a difference if you get involved.
0: Absolutely. Years ago, I was involved in the Western Ventura Leadership Council for the American Cancer Society. And I kind of fell into that situation and and that and I remember sitting with, you know, these just major doctors and amazing people that were doing such great things and I was, you know, sitting around this round table going like what the heck am I doing here, but I was learning so much about cancer. It's not something that my family has been touched with, but Hazel was someone and I knew that you were going through everything you were going through. And that was kind of my first experience with pediatric cancer. But you're right. It's it's such a, something that people shy away from because it is... It's a very sad topic and you don't want to see children hurting or... But if there's something that we can do, even just on the financial front, then why not? And what's so amazing with what you're doing with St. Baldrick's is that you know that when you give the money, it's going to the right spot and that it's being used correctly. And to me, that's so, so important because I don't have a ton of money to donate all the time but when I do yeah. I want to know what it's being used for
1: yeah and I think you're exactly right is you know that you know that the money is is actually doing the thing it's supposed to do I mean they they provide funding for research in the United States they're like the second highest next to the federal government in the amount of money that they are giving to to grants and to researchers. And so, I could have easily started my own foundation which many families like the Donatini family with the Bumblebee Foundation have done. I also just knew that that wasn't the right path for me at least right now, maybe maybe someday in the future, but with still raising four other kids and trying to keep our family together after Hazel's loss, I just knew I couldn't take on, you know, all the things that come with running your own nonprofit. So I felt my energy and my voice would be better spent if I come alongside the ones that are already doing a really great job. And the St. Baldrick's Foundation is one of them. We have many that we support, but that they are the ones that I feel like if you care about research and if you care about getting less toxic treatments for your kids or for the children who are facing childhood cancer, like that's where you want to, want to put your efforts toward. But if you're interested in being there for specific families, that's when you look to your community organizations, because that's when you can get in the homes and make dinner for families. That's when you can pick up kids from school or take laundry or help pay their mortgage bill and help them so they don't drown along the way. And that's equally as important, you know?
0: Yeah. On that note, one of the things when I was on that leadership council, I found myself driving people to and from chemo, and uh, is just because they couldn't even down to have, having to pay for Uber every time or having to pay or find someone to help them was such an interesting thing that I didn't even realize. Yes. Is out there that someone might need a ride, just right. a you, car ride. You don't realize how yeah how much
1: cancer changes a person's life and right and how it upends everything. And there's so much more that help that families and people need when they're going through treatment than just I'll pray for you which also is important. Yep. But right. but it's very you know, it's very easy to get distracted with everything else going on in your life and forget that these families are still going through it months and months and months later, you know.
0: I don't know if you remember when Joel passed away. Uh, I was in middle school. And one thing, when they put it, was it was a tragic incident. He had ha- happened to get swept away in our, our local wash. And it was such a kind of, we grew up in Moore Park and it was such an interesting experience because it was the first time that. You know, pretty much our community had dealt with something like that. And they put a lot of us through kind of like psychology classes to help deal and, and figure out just kind of our emotions with it. And I still remember to this day, one thing they said is instead of saying, I'm here for you, it, it was more, what can I do for you? And instead of being, call me if you need something, you actually call them and say, what do you need? And it's always set with me even now of, you know, instead of being like, hey, call me if you need me. It's more like, hey, I'll call you tomorrow and see how you're doing. Passive
1: versus active, you know. Exactly. Especially when somebody's going through a traumatic experience, they need active people in their life because they don't have the space in their brains.
0: So this is the point that Lauren and I get cut off on our audio, and it was such an honor to have a chance to talk to Lauren, for her to take the time and share her story of Hazel with me and with my listeners, and it really was an honor. And I just want to remind you to take the time to watch the documentary In the Dark of the Valley on MSNBC. And if you feel like you'd like to give in your heart this holiday season, go to the Bumble foundationcom You can donate money. You can donate a toy. You can donate a gift card. Anything is, is greatly appreciated. They help families during this holiday season. They help families. They sponsor families and um, help them when they're sitting in the hospital and have to pay for parking every single day. They help with that. They help with gas to and from the hospitals. They help by taking care of the family's other children who are going through hard times. Um, it's just an amazing organization. And in the holiday season, they create baskets with toys in them and just really uplifting the holiday season. And then if there's any leftover toys after the holiday season, they create spring baskets just to make the kids happy and have something to do while they're in the hospital on a day-to-day basis. So the Bumblebee Foundation is... Is definitely something that speaks to my heart. And I hope that you have it in your heart to donate to them. Um, and it doesn't have to be cash. It could also be, again, just sharing this podcast with fellow vendors, fellow wedding industry people, fellow Southern Californians, and just getting the word out about how we need a, a serious, cleanup of the Santa Susana Field Lab and how those who were responsible need to be held accountable. I wish you an incredible holiday season as we go into it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast.